Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. We're in Hebrews. We're going to finish, Lord willing, Hebrews chapter 7 tonight. And uh, it's the last what would that be, 16 verses, 13 through 28, if my math is uh, correct uh, on that. But this final section of chapter 7 establishes the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. The first part of this chapter obviously dealt with this as well, but This latter part of the chapter really establishes how much greater, how superior uh, the Melchizedek priesthood is to the uh, Aaronic Levitical uh, priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood being the the high priest line, if you will. Uh, There are different, uh, what I call worker bees in the tribe of Levite, and then were those who were in line to, to minister as priests um, in the temple and, and the sacrifices, that type of thing. Uh, today, they're the, the, the Kohanim, uh, that's who they were, uh, Kohens. And so uh, I'm a Levite, but I'm not a Kohanim. So I'm what you would might call a worker bee, uh, what I call a worker bee. Um, I probably do the cleanup and the carrying and, and that type of thing. Uh, so he will, he will talk, and he has talked, about uh, the, the more, I don't, I don't know if important is the right word, but the uh, more prominent uh, line of Levites, which would be the Kohanim, the ironic line of, of, of the priests. And Jesus is so much, the Melchizedekian priesthood is so much better than them. So this portion starts with the thought, it is evident. Then it goes on and says, yet far more evident. What is evident is that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. That's where it starts with what is evident. We'll look at that in verse 13 um, and in 14. But what is evident is that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. What becomes evident, or perhaps even more evident, uh, 
is that Jesus, uh, what becomes evident in this section is how much greater, and I put that in all caps to uh, emphasize that, uh, how Jesus is much greater, uh, the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus, compared to the Aaronic priesthood, meaning the Levitical priesthood. The importance of this section shouldn't be missed. Uh, a believer's eternal security is intrinsically tied not to ourselves, but to Jesus. And that's what it brings out, one of the things it brings out in this portion. Uh, for those in the Christian world, and I will, would say narrow it down to the evangelical Christian world, who believe you can lose your salvation, uh, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, right? It's on the wrong thing. The emphasis in salvation is never or should never be ourselves. We are saved by grace, we are kept by grace, and we are ultimately glorified by grace. If you focus on yourself, you can come to the conclusion we can lose salvation. Uh, and everybody who believes that ultimately is focusing on what we do, or don't do for that matter. Uh, it can be a sin of commission, or it can be a sin of omission. They're both sins. And so they say, well, if you, if you don't do this, or if you do do this, whatever this is, you can lose your salvation. And the emphasis is just totally wrong. And, and this is one of the, uh, the truths that this portion of, of Hebrews chapter 7 establishes that the emphasis is on Jesus. It's not on us. And if, and if, if the emphasis is on him, you're going to see why we are in eternally secure. Why? Because it's based on him and not us. So our eternal security, a believer's eternal security, is intrinsically tied. That means it's, it's part of, it belongs to. Uh, you can't separate it. Uh, it's intrinsically tied to, not ourselves, but to Jesus. And that's why we are eternal, eternally secure. So we'll see that as we move on in this. So it starts out in verses 13 and 14. For he, for he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So the Melchizedekian priesthood uh, has nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe. The Melchizedekian priesthood resides with Jesus. And then it goes on and says, it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Now, in, in our world today, if you would ask a Bible-believing Christian, what tribe did Jesus come from? My guess is maybe two out of ten would know. Um, you know, half of them don't know anything about anything about the Bible. Very sad. Uh, at this time in history, it is evident 
there was no question about where Jesus came from. And his lineage was extremely important. To be the Messiah, he had to come from Judah. That was one of the requirements for the Messiah. Um, the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, referred to Jesus, for he of whom these things are spoken. Uh, that's the first 12 verses of this chapter. But the requirement, I'm just reading now, of the priesthood, priesthood was to be the, from the tribe of Levi. It's a birth thing. It's a genealogical thing. Um, Jesus, though, as Messiah, couldn't be from the tribe of Levi. He was not in the lineage of the priests. He had to be in the lineage of kings. In Genesis 49.10, says this, The scepter, the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Genesis 49.10 is looked at as a messianic prophecy that the king is going to come out of Judah. And the kings did come out of Judah. To be the ultimate king, the messianic king, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to the tribe of Judah. Now, <clears throat> there are no official tribal lineage documents in the world today. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, all those documents were destroyed. And, and all you have to do is read the Bible, not just the earlier scripture, the Old Testament, but just read Matthew chapter 1, all the lineage. And lineage... Genealogy was extremely important in the Jewish world. Uh, you know, how many of you ever read First Chronicles and tried to get through the first three or four chapters and said, I'm skipping this and moving on to uh, whatever um, because it's so-and-so begot so-and-so, you know, that type of thing. But it's extremely important. But after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., no one could officially prove their lineage, which is a difficult place to be in today's world if you're looking for the coming of the Messiah and you don't believe he's Jesus. How does that individual prove that he's from the tribe of Judah? He can't. Now, the flip side of that, with genealogy being important, Obviously, then, uh, it would be passed down by word of mouth. Even though those in the, uh, in the 70 AD episode who survived the Roman invasion of Jerusalem, the destruction of it, and the temple, uh, they were scattered into um, the diaspora, the dispersion. Uh, they would have known unquestionably what tribe they were from, right? I mean, there's no question about that. And it would have passed down by word of mouth. Uh, you know, that's the only reason I can say, well, it's not the only reason. I, I, I you know, some of you have seen my, uh, I should have brought show and tell tonight, I guess. Um, uh, my circumcision certificate. Some, who has, I know, that's not something I wave around normally, but um, 
You have not? You want to see my circumcision certificate? <laughs> Cheryl, go get off my wall in the, in the office. You know where it is. So. It's a copy of my circ, circ you know. Uh, Joyce, just for you, we're going to do this, okay? Um, so, because you do know, you should know, or you will know, that Jewish males get their Hebrew name on their day of circumcision, on the eighth day. Think of Jesus. It was prophesied in Matthew 1, thou shalt call his name Jesus. When was he called Jesus? At his circumcision. Read Luke. That's when he got his name. But it was prophesied thou shalt call his name Jesus. So, I, I received my... She got it. Um, you got it? Okay. Um, I received my English name. My so. Um, <laughs> I received my English name at my birth, but I got my Hebrew name at my circumcision, and it's right here in Hebrew, so y'all can read it when you get it. Um, but it says, this is to certify that Mark Starr, Starr is my middle name, Robinson, um, son of uh, Robert and Phyllis, born on February 12th, um, what year was this? But anyway, <laughs> it even gives the time, that's a long time ago, but anyway, uh, has entered, was entered into the covenant of Abraham at home, 400 58th Street, New York, New York. That's where he lived at the time. And the, the Moyle, you know what a Moyle is? A Moyle is, a, is, is, a, is the ritual circumciser. Uh, he, yeah, he would circumcise. And he would, he'll come to the home with a rabbi and that. You know, I don't remember a lot about this, but I was there. Um, so, and uh, anyway, at, at the home, and it gives an address in New York City. In conformity with the... Um, ancient and hallowed Jewish, uh, Jewish observance of circumcision, and has thus become a member of the holy faith of Israel. That's got my Hebrew name, uh, which is Mikhail Ha-Levi. Michael the Levite. <clears throat> May it be a name honored in the household of Israel. Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, but the Moyle was a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Max Felschen from Radio Synagogue. So you can pass this around so they can actually um, see that that's when I got my Hebrew name. Um, now, why did I bring that all up? Oh, um, I, so how do I know I'm a Levite? Only because of that. Um, but obviously, and, and it says my father's name, Ha-Levi, and, and so on in, in the Hebrew. And by tradition, by word of mouth, uh, with genealogy being extremely important in the Jewish world, it stands to reason that that would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, is that authoritative? That would probably be authoritative enough uh, to allow me to serve if the temple was rebuilt outside of my being a believer in Jesus in the temple today. Uh, and that would probably be uh, accepted. At Jesus' time, 
everybody knew he was from the tribe of Judah. It was evident. There was no question about it. He fulfilled that messianic requirement. He had to be from the tri tribe of Judah. So for he of whom those, these things are spoken pertains to another tribe. In other words, uh, the tribe of Judah, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. No Judean king was to serve at the altar, was to serve as a priest. For it is evident, everybody knew. This, this was not a, a open for discussion. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now, and I think I'll mention this further as we go on down, but how many offices were in ancient Israel? What were the offices? Three of them. Prophet, priest, king. You officially served in one office. You could not serve in another office. Now, David officially served in what office? King. Just because he gave some prophecies, he's got a lot of prophecies, doesn't mean he was a prophet. A prophet is a spokesman for God and, and challenges the people. David was a king. But consider uh, in, in Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, obviously. But consider King Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles 26, in 16 through 21, we'll read that shortly. But Uzziah was from the tribe of Judah. He was the king. He would act in the capacity of a priest going into the temple, usurping the authority of the priest, and the result was God struck him with leprosy. And that lasted the rest of his life. So you could only operate in one office. Look at verses 16 through 21. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. When he was powerful, this, this Uzziah king. His heart was lifted up to his destruction. Isn't that always where destruction starts? Uh, your heart's lifted up, pride. You know, pride cometh before the fall. Anyway, he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of, the, of incense. And Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, fourscore priests, that were valiant men. I mean, they're going against the king. This was a powerful king at this point in his life. They didn't want him to go into the temple. He had no right to go into the temple and do what he was planning on doing. They, verse 18, withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, it, it appertains not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth. He was angry. He was livid with them. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry, wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead 
before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they thrust him out from thence. He was unclean now. Uh, yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land, ruling over the people. Very severe penalty for doing that which he knew he shouldn't do, but he thought, hey, I'm more powerful than anybody in this land. If I want to be a priest, I'll be a priest, and nobody can tell me no. Well, God didn't want it, and God struck him. Jesus, being from the tribe of Judah, could not be a priest after the order of, uh, of, of the Levites, the Levitical order, the Aaronic priesthood. So he just establishes right off, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So he meets the requirement to be the king, but he can't be a Levitical priest. Then in verses 15 through 17, it says this. It starts out verse 15. And it is yet far more evident. So it's evident to everybody at that point that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Um, but it's now far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arise another priest. I'll bring you back to modern-day evangelicals. If you would ask the average Christian today, who is Melchizedek, what do you think the response would be? I think it's a rock band. Um, no, really, you know, well, maybe not a rock band, but yeah, I, I, my guess is you could poll any um, Bible-believing church in the United States, in the world for that matter, um, and ask who Melchizedek is, and the answers you get would be would be, would be interesting. Um, they they were not illiterate at this time about the Bible. It is yet far more evident for that after the similitude, the likeness, and 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 grasp the the uh, the, um, the term similitude, the likeness of Melchizedek. Uh, They didn't, in, in biblical days, in, in Jesus' time, we'll just go there, they didn't have all of the um, distractions that we have today. I don't have my phone on me. But your iPad, your phone, your smartphone, um, your TV, um, the radio, you know, how many distractions do we have today? They're all over the place, and they can be used for good. They can be used for, for bad. They didn't have any of that stuff in biblical days. So there have been studies made and, and research done that showed that, uh, especially in Israel, uh, I presume perhaps in other cultures too, that they would put voluminous amounts of written material to memory. In this case, the Word of God. The reason being, even though it was written, the average person, you know, we, we, we are so spoiled. How many of you have one of these? Whatever form you have it in, um, whether, it's, whether it's leather with paper or, or tablet with uh, whatever, 
we are extremely spoiled. In biblical days, and I've mentioned this before, you would have to go to the temple, not to the temple, to the synagogue, where the scroll would be read. You didn't have a scroll in your house, so you didn't have a Bible in your house. If you wanted to know the Bible, you put it to memory. And studies have shown that they put voluminous amounts of the Bible, of, in the context there, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to memory. Uh, and they knew it. So they would, what we take for granted today, and we, you know, I'm guilty of this. How many of you have memorized one verse in the last six months? Okay, don't raise your hand. Um, good for y'all. Two, well, I know Cheryl does too. Um, maybe more than three or four of us, but not many more. Um, you know, why, why, why don't we memorize it? We've got it right here. I'm not saying that's right necessarily. You know, we've got a. You know, my phone is in the office. I've got a. I've got a Bible app on my phone. I've got a, a Bible program on my laptop. Um, I've got a Bible program on my computer. Um, I've got umpteen Bibles. You know, I don't know how many Bibles that I own. So we don't know, need to, we think, memorize, but the, the word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Um, all of that to say, we, you know, back in biblical times, they put it to memory. So they would have, not a lot about Melchizedek, Genesis 14, Psalm 110. But they understood he was there. He was talked about. He was mentioned. And so it is far more evident uh, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there rises another priest. Um, there had to be a priest that would come after the order of Melchizedek. This will be developed as we go on here. But that's what Psalm 110 verse 4 says. Thou, I, the Lord has sworn, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is he speaking of? He is speaking ultimately of Jesus, but of David's God, David's king. In the first three verses, the first couple of verses, especially of Psalm 110, David is speaking, the king of Israel is speaking, the highest human authority in Israel is speaking. And he says, the Lord said unto my Lord. David is speaking. The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my master, my king, my Lord. David is speaking, the highest human authority. So then who had to be over David? God. Well, Jesus, yes, but God. So the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then when you come down to verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn thou art a priest forever. Who is the thou? It's the one who's going to sit on the right hand of the Father. The one who is David's Lord. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So they knew at this time that there had to be somebody who would come who would ultimately be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that didn't mean they put everything together and understood everything. Uh, they, they knew passages, they knew the verses, they knew them by memory, but their understanding was still a little bit foggy. Uh, but it was evident. There had to be someone to come because of Psalm 110. Uh, so it's far more evident. Uh, so 
So what we have, with Jesus being the one spoken of in the first 12 verses, there was a necessity then of changing uh, the law. Why? Because Jesus is not from the Levitical tribe. He's from Judah, and yet he's going to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's got to be a change in the priesthood, uh, and by extension then, a change in the law. Because the priesthood was given under the law, speaking of the Mosaic law. Now, again in verse 15, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, a similitude literally means um, like or um, illustrative not the very one. So Jesus, you know, Melchizedek was, was a picture, was like, was an illustration uh, of, of what Jesus ultimately would be. Um, but he was not Jesus in a theophany. He was just a Gentile king who Abraham gave uh, tithes to. Verse 16 tells us this who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Jesus is, is not empowered after the law of a carnal commandment. The, the commandment there was the Levitical priesthood. Why was the Le Levitical priesthood carnal? And don't, th don't think of carnal in the sense of uh, sinful. It's carnal in the sense of what? It's temporary. What would happen to every single <coughs> Levite, ultimately? They'd die. And when, upon their death, they had to be replaced. Now, there was an expiration date anyway with, with priests serving from 30 to 50 years of age. But they would have to, if they died or reach that point, replace the priest. So it was, it was an always, I don't know if evolving is the right word, it was always changing. There was always a new person coming into that position because the old priest died, passed off the scene. This one, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, though, is after, look at the last phrase of verse 16, after the power of an endless life. There's the difference. You can wrap up the whole thought that it's giving here uh, in this section. The Levitical priesthood is carnal, temporary. The priest died. The Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal, endless, because it's based on someone who will never, ever die. He's got an endless life. Then verse 17. For he testifies, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's just quoting Psalm 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, it's endless. It's not, I didn't highlight it, I didn't underline it, but those two words, or there could be one word, I guess, in our language today, or, but forever. 
How long is the Melchizedekian priesthood? Not temporal. Wasn't carnal. It's forever because of the endless life of the one who would be the priest in that, Jesus. Now, that's important with what we're getting into. Turn the page over. Verses 18 and 19. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God, near unto God. So disannulling. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. The commandment is being spoken of is the commandment of the Levitical priesthood. They would serve God in the temple. They would offer sacrifices. They would intercede for the uh, offerer to God. But everything they did was temporal, was weak, could no way ultimately profit. The worshiper. It was it was a temporal priesthood, so there needed to be a disannulling of the commandment. There needed to be a doing away with the Levitical priesthood. Why? Verse nineteen. For the law made nothing perfect. Now the law here is the Mosaic law, but the, the again the the Levitical priesthood is part of the law. It was given under the law. And so he goes from the Levitical priesthood to the law. Can anyone be saved through the law? No. No. The law made nothing perfect. No one person. And the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the, the law follower. We're sinners. Um, look at... Um, Romans 3.20, I've got it down on the, on, under verse 19 here. Uh, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There is no way one can get to heaven by keeping any law system. It's so tragic when, I don't know the percentage, uh, 80 to 90 percent of the the churches in the world who call themselves Christian will teach some kind of law system for you to get saved, for you to get to heaven. You know, Gloria had mentioned the church that she's no longer working for. It's a liberal. I guarantee you, they taught a work salvation. Whatever that work was, you know, keep the Ten Commandments or uh, just be a good person. You know, define your own goodness. Um, that's, you know, and yet they claim to be Christian. Uh, no law system anywhere at any time saves anybody. Nobody becomes perfect through keeping the law because we are imperfect. Um, what's the purpose of the law? Galatians 3, 11, and then verse 24. First says, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. Here's another, it is evident. No man is justified, um, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified uh, in his sight, but that no man is justified by the law on the sight of God, it is evident. Why is it evident? 
Why should, why, why should it be evident? Let me put it that way. It's not evident to a lot of people, but why should it be evident that nobody is justified by the law, deeds of the law? What was that? Exactly. God requires perfection. The above, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, complete, perfect. God requires perfection. You can keep, James says, the entire law, your whole life. But if you break it in how many points? One. You are guilty of breaking the whole law. As Ken said, the, the problem is not with the law. The problem was with us. should be evident that we don't get saved through works because we keep on breaking the law. We keep on sinning. We keep on falling short of God's glory, of God's perfection. It's evident. It should be evident. Now, is that, hopefully it's evident to us. Uh, if you're here thinking you can get saved by some kind of law-keeping, you, you need to rethink what you're thinking because it should be evident to you. And, and if you reason logically with somebody, even if they're not saved, uh, salvation always starts with God. It never starts with us. And the keeping of salvation, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, always starts with God, never with us. And so if you start with God, God is perfect without sin, holy. That's what he requires for salvation. Well, how many people in this world are perfect, holy, without sin? None. It's evident then that we cannot please God by what we do. That, that's the argument here. And, and, and if you could, not that somebody would get saved by reasoning with them around through this logic, but this is, a, this is an excellent way to share, if you have the opportunity, your faith with somebody. Uh, you, 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 want to, you want to reason, remember talked about last week, from, from the greater to the lesser. Uh, and the greater is God, we're the lesser. And just reason with them. You know, God is perfect. God is without sin. God is holy. And that being the case, the only people that God will allow in heaven, according to the, and you want to give them verses, but the only people that God will allow in heaven are those who are like him, perfect, holy, without sin. And that being the case, is there any law system out there? Mosaic law, Catholic Church's law, the Islamic law, you name it, that, can, that, can, that you can follow that will allow you to get into heaven. Well, logically, the answer is no, because you keep on breaking it. So uh, that's the argument. Now, the law made nothing perfe perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. The better hope is contrasted to what? The lesser hope, maybe we could call it. Those who are misguided. What were they hoping the law system that they followed would do? Save them. Give them to heaven. We go out in the world today, and if anybody's religious, well, are you a practicing Catholic? Are you a practicing Jew? Are you a practicing Muslim? Uh, are you following the dictates of your religion? Uh, when everything is said and done, 
uh, do you know that you will be in heaven because you followed the dictates of your religion? You know what they're going to say, invariably? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know, but I hope so. Um, th there's a lesser hope there. It's really no hope. But the better hope, the law made nothing for the bringing in of a better hope. Why is our ho the hope that we have better? Because it's not based on us, based on him. That's really the whole focus of this portion of Hebrews 7. It's focused on him. By the which we draw near unto God. We come near unto God through Jesus. Look at John 14, 6. Um, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's no other alternative. There's no way to come to God but by Jesus. It's not a birthright of the Jewish people. It's not because you belong to any church group, whatever church group that may be. No man comes unto the Father, Jesus said, but by me. Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You want salvation? You want deliverance from your sins? You want eternal life, forgiveness of sin? There's no other name under heaven given. Only one, Jesus, whereby we must be saved. There's no other alternative. You cannot be saved through the law or any other way. In verses 20 through 22, it now says this. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. It's a double negative. Um, not without an oath he was made priest. Uh, for those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swore and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety, a down payment of a better testament. So you, um, the first verse 20, you have a double negative. In other words, he was made a priest with an oath. Verse 21 um, Tells us about that. For those priests were made without an oath. That's the Levitical priesthood. How did you get to be a Levitical priest? You were born into it. You didn't have any choice. You were born into the priesthood. You didn't have to take an oath. It, it, it came as a part of your birthright. And you were a priest, the tribe of Levi, that served God. The Melchizedekian priesthood came about because of God's oath. God's swearing. He quotes again Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord swore, will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Don't ever divorce this from the context of Psalm 110. The first three verses, especially the first couple of verses, are speaking of whom? Jesus. The Lord, Jehovah, David is speaking. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So 
talks about him coming in the day of his power, the, the people shall be willing in the verses that follow. But again, the, the basis of that is Messiah, is Jesus. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn you, Messiah, David's Lord, are to priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's word should be enough. Um, now, I, I've got here um, Genesis twenty-two sixteen and 18. Um, we'll read that shortly. God's promise, that alone is enough, isn't it? If it's an unconditional promise, shouldn't that be enough? Yeah. But when God swears or, or gives an oath on top of that, that's how strong he is in communicating this. Now, look at Hebrews 6. Just go back. I don't have the notes here. So turn to Hebrews 6 because that's what he did uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, if you remember. Verse 13, and in this portion, the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews, it is one of the strongest portions of the Word of God talking about eternal security. Hebrews 6, 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Um, and he goes down talking about God giving an oath, swearing. Not, don't think of swearing with four-letter words. That's not what it's all about. He's giving it. It's just, it, it is a very, very strong statement by God. L look, at, look at Genesis chapter 22. It's mentioned here in the Hebrews portion. But look at verse 16. It's on your paper. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations, all families of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, this language is picked up from where? Do you remember? Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. For God there gave a promise to Abraham. That promise is enough. But when God wanted to drive at home, now, if Abraham wouldn't have obeyed in bringing Isaac in chapter 22, to offer him as a sacrifice as God commanded, would God still have fulfilled his promises to Abraham that he gave back in Genesis 12? Yeah. That's not a liar. God makes a promise he's going to bring it to pass. But upon the obe obedience of Abraham, he reinforces this, and he swears to Abraham uh, after he sees his obedience, I am going to bring to pass that which I promised to you. A promise is enough from God. An oath on top of it is just, just driving it home. 
uh, is what he is saying. When you come to Jesus being the priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's based on God's oath, how, how strong it is. Um, that thou will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22 of Hebrews 7, by so much was Jesus made a, a surety of a better testament. The inference is this. The Old Covenant, the, the, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, was imperfect. Couldn't save anybody. Thus, there had to be a change of the law. There had to be a doing away of the old and bringing in the new. The Old Testament, and, and this, this regularly needs to be repeated, even though you've heard me say it 3,200 times probably. The Old Testament is not Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament is not Matthew to Revelation. Those were terms that were introduced in the late 2nd century. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy right now. One of the church fathers that became accepted and is so well accepted in the Christian world that it, you, 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 it's just, you hear it everywhere. You hear it all the time. But the Old Testament, biblically speaking, or the Old Covenant, same thing, is the Mosaic Law. The New Testament or the New Covenant is, and the Old Covenant is the relationship God had with the nation, Israel. The New Covenant or the New Testament is the relationship God has with individuals. It's not a book. Neither of them are a book. It's a relationship. So when the Old Testament was done away with, it's not Genesis to Malachi. It's the Mosaic Law. When the New Covenant is established, it's not saying Matthew to Revelation is much more important for us to study than Genesis to Malachi. It's all the Word of God. And, and it just flows and one leads into another. So what was done away with was the relationship that God had with a nation, Israel. What is being established He's the down payment of a better testament, a better, paraphrase if you will, relationship. That through Jesus, every single person in the world can have a relationship with God. Because of his blood that was shed for the New Testament. So the old was done away with. Why? Because God wanted all families of the earth to be blessed. Or as it says in in Genesis chapter 22, and in the, thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. God always intended for Gentiles to come into the family of God as well as Jewish people. Jesus is the way. Now look at verse 23. And they truly were many priests. Now, who are they? The many. The Levites. There are all kinds of them. There were, there, were, there were hundreds and thousands of Levitical priests. They were many. Truly, there were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They were not allowed uh, to continue by reason of death. Hey, when you die, it's over. You need to be replaced. There were a lot of priests because of the continual dying of those who held the priesthood. But this man, because he continueth 
ever have an unchangeable priesthood. How many times in, in these verses we've looked at that said that he lives forever, he continues forever, he, you know, he never, you know, it's just over and over and over again. That's the focus. But then look at the next phrase. He had an unchangeable priesthood. Now, the, um, and uh, that didn't come over into the Greek, but that's all right. Um, Aparapatos. It literally means unviolated, not to be violated, inviolable, or better understood, unchangeable, and therefore not liable to pass to its successor. When you have the Melchizedekian priesthood, it couldn't pass to a successor. It remained with the person that it was given to. And why would it remain forever with him? What's the argument? He lives forever. He's never going to die. Not like the Levitical priests are going to die. It's an unchangeable priesthood. Now, turn your, turn your, go to the last page. I want to, br I want to bring up a point on this, the unchangeable priesthood. Mormonism. Mormonism claims that they have the Melchizedek priesthood today. Now, this quote comes from the LDS, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon official Latter-day Saints website. I'm just reading what they say. Here's what they say. Though the authority of the Melchizedekian priest of the Melchizedek priesthood, through the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, church leaders guide the church and direct the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. In the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, the power of godliness is manifest. DNC is Doctrines and Covenants, one of their books. This greater priesthood was given to Adam and has been on the earth whenever the Lord has revealed his gospel. It was taken from the earth during the great apostasy. Now, I don't remember when the great apostasy, according to Mormonism, started. Uh, I think it was shortly after the first century of the first church. Um, and that great apostasy lasted until 1829. When the gospel was restored in 1829 to the Mormon church. When the apostles Peter, James, and John conferred it, conferred it upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Coterie. Their website goes on and says this. The offices of the Melchizedek priesthood are apostle, the 70, you, you have the, in, in the LDS, in the Mormon church, you have the, the head guy. Uh, I don't know who the head guy is today. Uh, doesn't matter, he's only the head of the Mormon church. But, you know, you got the head guy. Then you got the 70 who are under him. That rule, uh, my guess is that comes from, remember what Moses did, he was the head guy and said, choose out 70 men that are wise, you know, probably comes from that. But these are all in the Melchizedekian priesthood. You got the, you got the head guy, uh, the apostle, you got the 70, you got the patriarch, you got the high priest uh, and the elder. Now, even though it's in the singular, there, these are, you know, 
you know, I, I always speak, you know, these, these kids come to my door. You know, they're riding bikes. They got white shirts. And they're clean shaven. Bob, you could never be one of them. But anyway. And, and they always say, hi, I'm Elder John. I said, you're not my elder, spiritually or physically. You're a kid, you know. But if you're an elder, you're in the Melchizedekian priesthood. So it's more than just one person. The pres an elder, the president of the high priesthood is the president of the church. See, Doctrines and Covenants, 107, so on and so forth. Clearly, the Mormon church believes that the Melchizedekian church the priesthood stopped during the great apostasy. But when Peter, James, and John ultimately came across um, Joseph Smith and Oliver uh, Coterie, they conferred it onto them, and the gospel re was restored to the world. And the Melchizedekian priesthood was restored. If you, this is a great way to witness to Mormons, if you can get a word in edgewise. But anyway, the Melchizedek priesthood remains forever with, and I put it in bold and capital letters, only Jesus, since he will never die. In other words, it never passes on to anybody else. It never changes because Jesus lives forever. What this verse does, verse 24, where it says, um, but this man, because he continues ever, he lives forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, is never changing, never passes on, always remains with him. Verse 24 of Hebrews 7 totally invalidates the entire religion of Mormonism, destroys it, knocks it out of the park, kills it, and establishes Mormonism, them, at best as a satanic counterfeit. If you know nothing else about how to witness to Mormons, remember Hebrews 7.24. An unchangeable priesthood it means it can't be passed on. Remember that phrase. It cannot be passed on. That's what unchangeable means. It cannot be passed on to anybody else. It lives with Jesus. It remains with Jesus because he, Jesus, lives forever. Perhaps the most important verse in witnessing to Mormons. Um, now, they're going to want to talk about all kinds of stuff and, um, you know, nail them on that. You know, ask them a question on that. Next time they knock on your door, I got a question for you. You're an elder, right? Uh, are, you, are you in the Melchizedekian priesthood or are you uh, going to be there one day? And uh, if they're not yet, they will be there. They will say yes to that. Uh, and so you can say, well, is it true that the Mormon church believes that the Melchizedekian church priesthood was revived when the, and the gospel was revived with Joseph Smith? Yeah, 
they're going to they're gonna echo uh, Amen Corner there. Well, I got a question for you then. Hebrews 7.24, where it says, but this man, Jesus, make sure they know it's Jesus, because he lives, continues forever. He lives forever. He never dies. Had an unchangeable priesthood, and the unchangeable priesthood is the Melchizedekian priesthood. It cannot pass on to anybody else. How come you claim to be in the Melchizedekian priesthood? According to this, it only belongs to Jesus. Seems to me that you're teaching false doctrine. They're not going to know what to do. Um, so, since they're 18 or 19, they may start crying. Um, no, really, really. Um, although they usually have one trainer and one young person. I, I remember years ago talking to a Mormon. Um, and uh, remember that? With, were you there with Russ and uh, Michelle up in their place? And anyway, this poor kid, he started crying. You know, and, and you know, breaks your heart. He's 18, but he's a, he's a, he's a false teacher. You know, he just started crying. And, 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 I, and I, I said, I'm not, I, I, my purpose is not to destroy your faith only, but to give you the true faith and who true Jesus truly is. They shift him out of the area. You know, if they, you know, Mormons, you know, spend two years in missionary service, wherever it might be, and, and, and they could be from Utah. This, they were sent to Southern California. He was a basket case. You know, he was just torn apart. Um, and because he was questioning at this point, and, and his compatriot told the, uh, the better elders or whatever, they shipped him, they took him away. Shipped him, I don't know, who, who knows where he went. Only God knows if he ever came to the Lord. This verse destroys Mormonism. Are you listening, Glenn? Not, 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 where's, not, not Glenn, not, not, Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so, he's following a false religion. Pardon? I know he doesn't. Okay, verses 25 and 26. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Memorize this. Get it into your heart. Get it into your mind. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost. I, nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Why is Jesus able to save you to the uttermost? Because he lives forever to make intercession for us. See, the whole point of this is it's not you, it's him. He is eternally in the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He will never lose that priesthood because he lives forever and he is always interceding for us because of that. He ever lives to make an intercession for us. Um, I, I put down in verse 25 here, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, he doesn't want us to sin, but if any, are, are we going to sin? Yeah. 
Does our sin then sell, send us to hell if we're redeemed? No. Why? We have an advocate. We have a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We cannot lose it. I, I, I can't say it enough. And, and you can go into Pentecostal churches, you can go into charismatic churches, you can go to Lutheran churches, you go into um, every church of stripe and color almost and tell you you can lose your salvation because their focus is man-centered, not God-centered. We cannot lose our salvation because he, Jesus, lives forever, always interceding, making intercession for us because he's our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He ever lives to do that. He's going to save us to the uttermost. This is in Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. Uh, that is one of the strongest arguments for eternal security you'll find in the Word of God. Um, and, and I think it's put there because of the misunderstanding oftentimes on the first eight verses of Hebrews 6. It is one of the strongest teachings on the eternal security of a believer, 9 through 20. This statement right here, verse 25, is an incontrovertible. It means it cannot be denied, it cannot be, be changed. Um, people do deny it, I understand that, but, but it, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe Joe Preacher says you can be lost? Or the Bible who says that Jesus lives forever to make intercession for us and will save us to the, to the uttermost. How far out is the uttermost? It's the uttermost. It's, for, it's all the way out. It's, it's, the, it's eternity. eternity. You know, um, put your trust in the word of God. Then he says this, for such a high priest became us. Became literally means to be fitting. In other words, he became exactly what we needed. We're sinful. We're rebellious. We're lost. We needed something. We needed someone. He became us. Such a high priest became us. He, he met our every single need. Why? He's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. And he's made higher than the heavens. I should have put that down there too. Holy. In his very, we've talked about holy before. In his very nature, he is intrinsically unique spiritually and physically because he became one of us. Spiritually and physically perfect without sin. He is holy. He became us, but he became holy, different than us. Holy literally means unique, set apart, with an intrinsically spiritual purpose. But becoming us, he became holy, not only spiritual, in his, but, it, but it physically. He was without sin. He is harmless. Harmless literally means, you may have a translation that translates this innocent. 
It's without guile. He's without fraud. He's without sin whatsoever. He is innocent. He is harmless. He has never committed one sin, internally, externally. He is undefiled. He is free from that by which the nature of a thing is deformed or debased. We are what? Are we undefiled? We're defiled. What defiles us? Thank you, Adam. We would have done the same thing. Sin. We are all defiled. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners. He was not like anyone else born into this world. He was completely different, separate from sinners. We looked at that earlier in, in Hebrews when we looked at the, the terms uh, partaker of. Uh, and there's, there's two words in the Greek to speak of partaker of. Uh, and it talks about uh, Jesus partook uh, of flesh and blood back in Hebrews chapter 2. Um, and, and the best way to describe it is what was described to me years ago by a born-again believer from Greece who grew up with the Greek language. And he said, what that word is communicating, let me put it this way. He said, uh, and in Hebrews 2, um, I think it's verse 8, I'm not, I don't remember exactly. But he said, it's like if you go over to somebody's home for uh, dinner and fellowship. They belong there. They live there. They partake of everything that that home has to offer because they are part of that home. But when you go there and visit, you're partaking of the hospitality of the home and, and all that has to offer, but you don't belong. You're going to leave. That's those two different Greek words. When, when he took, partook of flesh and blood, um, he took on flesh and blood, but he doesn't belong because he is different. He is without sin. So important. So he is separate from sinners, but he became man. And then the end of it, who is, who, and, and made higher than the heavens. He ultimately um, ascended up into the heavens where he sits on the right hand of God. Then verse 27 and 28. Who needs not daily as those high priests, the Aaronic priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, came after the law, Psalm 110, verse 4, makes the sin, makes the son, who is consecrated forevermore. Now, in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 especially, we'll see that once for offer sacrifice. It's introduced here. Why is Jesus so much better than the Levitical priest? Because he offered one sacrifice and then sat down. Why is he so much better? Why is his sacrifice enough? Because of the word of the oath. Again, going back to God swore Psalm 110.4 uh, came at the establishment of the Lord, establishes Jesus 
as the high priest because he is consecrated forever. Consecrated, teleo, literally means perfected, without sin, complete. He is the perfect one. He is the perfect high priest. He is the uh, son who is perfected forevermore because he died for our sins. Hebrews chapter 7 establishes Jesus in the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and it establishes, just nails it, that we are who are truly saved, not, not the professors, but the possessors. We who are truly saved are, are eternally secure. We cannot lose our salvation. He intercedes for us for all eternity. Unto the uttermost are we saved. It is an extremely, a lot of people look at Hebrews because of the misunderstanding of the warning passages as one of the main books that teaches Christians can lose their salvation. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Hebrews, perhaps as much as any book outside of Romans, certainly uh, maybe not Romans chapter 8, uh, establishes that the believer is eternally secure, not because of who we are and what we do, but because of who he is and what he does, did and does for us, in that he lives forever. And he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, eternally interceding. It is an extremely powerful statement that we are forever secure in Jesus if we've trusted him as our Lord and Savior. Underline that in your mind, in your heart. You know, how can you have peace in this world if you don't believe that? Underline that in your heart and mind. We, it's him, it's not us. Any thoughts or questions? Good. Hey, I want you to know this time. Look at the time up there. Eight thirty, right on the button. Okay, we've got um, chocolate-covered peanut butter, peanut butter bars, right? And maybe some other stuff, and some other stuff. So let's let's pray for these um, stuff. I won't even I won't even speak derogatorily of uh, of this. Uh, decadent food that we're all going to partake of shortly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and goodness. And, uh, you know, as it was said earlier, you know, we need to praise you. Uh, and, Lord, after what uh, we've seen in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, praise should be a continuous um, uh, symphony coming out of our lips. We are secure forever not because of who we are, but because of you, Jesus. To God be the glory. What a great Savior that we have. Bless our fellowship, bless the food, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts our teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. 
If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.